This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Imagine a world where nothing is as you expect it to be. You take a drive in your car, and green lights mean stop, and red lights mean go. Folk music is considered corrupt, evil, and politically incorrect, while commercial pop music is the sound of integrity. Fascists and communists, terrorists, evangelists, and idealists, traditionally sworn enemies, are now working together toward common goals. Even once familiar labels have been mischievously switched, a can of beans might contain caviar, motor oil, or paint thinner. The world we live in is no longer the world we are living in. The axes of evil, whatever that actually might mean, are now prison bars around our lives and our dreams, forcing us to be prisoners in a scenario we never could have imagined. We are prisoners of terror, we are prisoners of fear, and we are now prisoners of the very culture we ourselves have created. Our world is so saturated with fear now that we can hardly separate ourselves from it. We use all sorts of things to distract ourselves, entertainment, celebrity, politics, pornography, And while much of this is explicit enough to amuse, stimulate, or infuriate us, we hardly notice that in so doing, it continually reorganizes us. With art and poetry now faded irretrievably into this type of mutated media, we are left to conjecture the ways that this new breed of culture may be taking its place. Is it now possible that fear and terror are now taking over the social role that music or fashion served over the last three decades? It seems as if terror is arguably the most important, ubiquitous, and least understood shapers of public consciousness today, and once again, the most terrifying. Our little world of design is often dismissed as a mere effect of surface, and this might well be valid if one could understand by surface, quote-unquote, the profundity of all things. But what is the mere effect of surface today? Social confidence? Personal definition? Religious affiliation? A buffer against what we are afraid of? Ultimately, when we give style to our character now, we are really doing nothing more than claiming and renouncing freedom and choices. And with choices come battles over choices. Ideological battles are so much a part of our culture that even choosing what sneakers to wear puts you in danger of being ridiculed, robbed, or attacked. And that, dear listeners, is the least of it. We are now living in a culture that is so ravaged by ideological choice and the need to persuade the world that our personal, political, sexual, and economic choices should be everyone else's choices, too, that we have lost sight of any sense of cultural diversity, tolerance, and humility. We are now not only at war with our leaders, our courts, and our enemies, we are truly at the mercy of this cultural war of the world.
What are we to do now? We are living in an age where nothing is certain anymore. As our choices as humanity dwindle and we live in fear of losing our basic rights, what are we to do? Where can we go? I have often said, both on this show and many, many other places, that the condition of brand has become the condition of our culture. I now believe that the condition of our culture has become the condition of our spirit. So, rather than being prisoners of our culture, I think we must be an inspiration to our culture. We must constantly push forward and reach for higher ground. And no single gesture can be excluded from this effort. It includes our politics. It includes our design work. It includes our dreams and our hopes and our fears. If we do not examine everything that we are doing to contribute and impact our culture, we are going to be reliant upon that. We must be able to change it. No matter how bleak the situation into which we have been thrown by this condition of our culture, it does offer opportunities. We know need only invent them. By understanding our living and our working context, we blow open, if only for an instant, if only for an instant, avenues of integrity not yet charted or explored. And today, dear listeners, whether by coincidence or sheer luck, we are going to be talking about the condition of our culture, the possibilities and potential of our future, and what the heck is happening in our world as we speak. I am so fortunate to have on today's show futures researcher and trend forecaster, Andrew Zoli. Let me tell you a little bit about him before we get into our what will likely be a very provocative conversation. Andrew Zoli is a futures researcher who analyzes critical trends at the intersection of culture, technology, and global society. His firm, Z and Partners, helps a select number of global companies change and Institution C understand and respond to complex change. Andrew serves as futurist in residence at both Popular Science and American Demographics magazines, as well as Public Radio's Marketplace. He is also the curator of the annual PopTech Conference, an elite annual gathering of thought leaders which explores the social impact of technology and the shape of things to come. Andrew was recently named one of the emerging explorers of the National Geographic Society. We will talk at length about that today. And in early 2005, he was named to Fast Company's Fast 50, the magazine's annual compilation of emerging business leaders. In 2002, Andrew compiled and edited the Catalog of Tomorrow, which explores 100 trend and technologies for the next 25 years. Andrew's work, writings, and ideas have appeared in a wide array of media outlets, including PBS, National Public Radio, The New York Times, Wired, Business Week, ID, Fast Company, The History Channel, and many, many others. Dear listeners, I welcome Andrew Zoli. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. So let's just get started. Were you surprised by yesterday's terrorist attack in London? Uh, no. I don't think many of the people in the uh, foreign policy establishment were surprised. I mean, in the, you have to separate out what you mean by surprise. Certainly, we were all incredibly shocked and saddened, and uh, this, is, this attack, while it's not entirely clear who's pulled it off, bears all the hallmarks of an al-Qaeda attack. Al-Qaeda likes big, simultaneous attacks using relatively low-end technology. This was explosives, each one of which the four explosives used weighed less than 10 pounds. These are very common uh, 
signatures of, a, of an al-Qaeda attack. Um, I think that certainly all of us in the futures field are expecting these kinds of attacks. Um, one of the terrible things about them is that there's been a significant shift away from symbolic targets that were the targets, say, on 9-11 to entirely soft targets. These are targets aimed entirely at the populace with no real symbolic value. They're entirely designed to create uh, and exacerbate political discord within societies that are perceived to be on the fence uh, in their cooperation with the United States. That's the same thing that we saw in Madrid. It's exactly the same thing we saw timed here with the G8 summit. Uh, and eventually those are the sorts of things we'll see here in the United States. It's a matter of time. Do you think that the terrorists were standing and waiting for the Olympic decision and then attacked London, or do you think it was just a coincidence? Oh, it's a co it was a total coincidence. You think so? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that in any – I think the, the signature event here is the G8 summit. Uh -huh. But even then, um, one of the things that's certainly true is that these networks are under such uh, difficult operational conditions. It's very difficult to operate with this level of secrecy. There's, as you can imagine, uh, a worldwide police action currently focused on infiltrating these networks and – those networks have been uh, very successfully infiltrated by our law enforcement in the past. Um, there have been dozens of attacks stopped here and in Europe since 9-11 and especially since Madrid, uh, which really galvanized the Interpol and the European uh, police and intelligence forces to, to work on this as a continental issue. But the truth of the matter is that uh, the, these are often targets that happen, there are often attacks that happen as a result of of opportunistic factors. You either go or you don't go. What do you mean by opportunistic factors? Well, if you're going to carry out such an attack, you can't wait around very long in terms of the planning to really carry it out. Once you make the decision to do it, you may not have uh, complete control over whether you do it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or next week, but you have to do it as soon as you possibly can because the longer you wait, the more likely you are to be discovered. So, uh, while it's very likely that this was designed to coincide with the G8 summit, uh, and it was unlikely that anyone could have known that London would even have received the Olympics, so it's, it's unlikely that that was part of the, the issue. But, of course, it creates this extraordinary contrast for, for everyone around the world seeing a, a city that's enthralled by its choice for 2012 and then you know, 24 hours later in, uh, in tragedy. Well, of course, all the conspiracy theorists now are saying that there were bombs in waiting in all of the cities that were in contention for the Olympics, and, you know, the button was pressed in terms of where they would actually be detonated once the decision was made. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's uh, ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> the reason it's ludicrous, it, it, the thing about conspiracies is that conspiracy theories require us to hold in our minds, if you think about it, two radically dissimilar um, or radically opposed ideas. One is that there are these deep governmental conspiracies and people know about these and the governments are so smart that they can carry out uh, under the cloak of secrecy all kinds of conspiracies but so dumb that they can't hide them from the public at large. Um, if the terrorists had, to be, had the ability to detonate bombs in every one of the cities that were under Olympic contention, they would have. They would have, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to take a quick break, Andrew. I'd like to let everyone know that they are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is futures researcher and trend forecaster, Andrew Zoli. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. 
listening to The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On Managing Technology the Right Way, we'll talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its associated risks. Heard every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Sun Jogal, the host of Managing Technology the Right Way, will interview business leaders and other experts that have shaped the way we use technology. If you want to keep up with the changing world of technology, listen to Managing Technology the Right Way with Sun Jogal every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time right here on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. You hear business show after business show all geared towards improving a company's bottom line. But what about your bottom line? How come no one ever talks about that? Finally, a show dedicated to the worker, The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, The Crow Show is aimed specifically at the worker and their environment. From work skills and technology to dealing with bosses and coworkers, The Crow Show will give you insight on how to survive and prosper in today's workplace. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of Business Talk, BusinessAmericaRadio.com. Think you've got a grip on the profit potential your property has? Tune in to VoiceAmerica.com Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for Commercial Real Estate 101 with Dennis Manning. Dennis will teach you the ins and outs of the massive world of real estate. You will learn the rewards and pitfalls of why to invest in commercial real estate. You'll also hear from experts in property management, lending, title work, tax-deferred exchanges, legal issues, and many entrepreneurial investors. The best part? You'll learn to generate a regular income that will lead to enticing capital gains. So don't miss one moment of Commercial Real Estate 101 with Dennis Manning. Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.17 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is futures researcher and trend forecaster, Andrew Zoli. If you'd like to join our conversation or if you have a question for Mr. Zoli, please call us at 1-866-233-7861. And uh, before the break, we were talking a bit about what happened yesterday with the terrorist attack in London and deep governmental conspiracies. Um, my guest, Andrew Zoli, is, is very well known for uh, his demographic trends, and I'd like to talk to you a little bit, Andrew, about what you believe are some emerging demographic trends and how they really fit into the big picture of today's culture. Well, certainly, you know, there's a kind of a truism that demographics is destiny, that in some sense the people who are in a society determine its relationships uh, to family, its attitudes toward culture and approach to new technologies and governance and health care and environment, all the things that we concern ourselves with. That's the, yeah, demographics is destiny. There's a T-shirt for you. <laughs> and in fact, I think really the truth is that demographics isn't actually destiny all by itself, but it's certainly a major contributor. The things that we see today that are really fascinating is around the world, currently, the, uh, the world population is in the middle of a big spike, a big jump. It's actually growing from about 
just under 7 billion people today to about 9.5 billion people by the middle of the century. That's the median consensus estimate. We're adding about a billion people um, uh, over the next uh, 10 or 15 years. Now, the, the rate of change, the n amount of people on the planet is still skyrocketing upwards, but the rate is actually slowing down a little bit like an apple if you threw it up in the air. As it got close to the top, it would slow down before it came down. Mm -hmm. uh, what that creates for much of the world really determines their relationships, society's relationships to each other. For instance, across much of the developing world, we're seeing something called a youth bulge. In the 1970s, the UN was successful in putting in place lots of global health care, which helped uh, young societies and societies that previously didn't have a lot of health care, helped their children live through childbirth, helped women live through the childbirthing experience. And as a result, we have a huge growth of young people in places like Morocco and Egypt across much of the northern shoulder of Africa. In a place like Morocco, 70% of the population is under the age of 30. 70% of the population of Morocco is under the age of 30. That's right. And you have enormous uh, gray market unemployment, enormous gray market employment and lots of official unemployment because there aren't jobs for all of those young people to do in their societies. Now, north of the Mediterranean, in places like Italy, Germany, France, uh, across much of what we think of as the developed Western world, we're actually seeing a rapidly graying society. So that, for instance, between now and mid-century, the average age of an Italian is going to rise from about 35, 36 as it is today, to almost 57. And that's a really difficult problem for societies that are in that circumstance because it's very hard to run your economy when half of the people in your society are at or near retirement age. In fact, many demographers look forward to a world uh, in that part of, uh, of force, a trend in that part of the world called Eurabia, which is when those societies south of the Mediterranean that have a massive excess of people eventually migrate large percentages of their communities north of the Mediterranean where they have societies with good governance and jobs and Western styles of, of consumption and Western style social contracts. Of course, all of this is the subtext, for instance, to the conversations that are currently happening around the EU and whether or not the EU should expand to embrace places like Turkey. In fact, if that happens, as it may happen in 2014, uh, with the stroke of a pen, there would instantaneously be more Muslims in Europe than there are practicing Protestants. What implications does that have? Well, for a society, and we can here talk about just a general European society that doesn't have a lengthy, strong interest and a, and a really focused interest in uh, immigration and a strong, good history of immigration, um, this creates all kinds of internal political strife and cultural strife. Um, at the same time, it's interesting to compare that to what's happening in places like the United States. Uh, in the United States, we're actually headed towards something called an hourglass society with the largest number of older people in our society's history ever and the largest number of young people in our society's history and the fewest proportional number of working-age adults. Those are the mm. folks who are in the middle. Now, that shifts all kinds of things in our society. For instance, a woman born after 1980 is all but statistically guaranteed to take care of her mother longer than her mother took care of her. And in the process, we'll be redefining the family. One of the fastest demographic categories in our society is married with parents. That is, married with parents that you have to take care of. Right. Your 
on the hook for them. Uh, I live in uh, New York City, and I live in a brownstone that was originally multi-generational housing, and then in the mid-century uh, period was turned into multi-family housing, three different families living where one family with different generations used to live. And now these buildings are being turned back into multi-family housing because you have two middle-aged folks who have to take care simultaneously of both their children and their parents. But in a society where you have lots of older people and lots of younger people, we have to design solutions that work for a much wider array of people, that work for older folks and younger folks. Now, when you say design solutions, what do you mean by that? Well, think about all of the things in our society, everything from cultural products, like the books we read and the movies that we work, we, uh, we go to see, the, the kinds of uh, television shows that we like to watch. Um, there's suddenly a market in a society with a lot of older people for very different kinds of cultural products aimed at a very different audience with a different set of concerns. Um, one of the fastest-growing retail categories in the United States and there are several really big companies that are working on um, new retail concepts uh, in this area, are multiple generations of women shopping together. That is, grandma, ma, and her daughter all shopping in the same store, appealing to a much wider demographic. Uh, but it's not just the graying of our society that we're going to see a lot more of. By mid-century, white non-Hispanics, which is today about 70% of what we would think of as white people in America, represent about 70% of the population. 70% uh, of the U.S. population of the is U.S. population is Caucasian. Is Caucasian. What we think, yeah. what democracies call them white non-Hispanics. Okay. That's the category on the census that people self-select into. By mid-century, the projected estimate is that for the first time in the history of our country, um, those Caucasian Americans... Uh, uh, white non-Hispanics will be the largest statistical minority in a society with no racial, cultural, or ethnic majority, and at least one in four of our Americans will be Hispanic. Now, that's just the folks who are already here. The new people who will be coming into the country are coming both from the South, they're coming from Latin and South America, and they're coming from the West, west of us. That is to say, they're coming from the other side of the Pacific Ocean instead of the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. They're coming from Asia. And so this has all kinds of cultural implications. A good example of that is probably 50% of the people listening to the show studied Spanish in high school. Now, they did so because it was a useful secondary language, but it wasn't necessary. But our kids will have to study Spanish because there's never been a society with this large an ethnic minority that hasn't become bilingual. And those useful secondary languages are things like Hindi and Mandarin 25 years from now. Um, because those are the languages that my son and daughter will study in high school. Instead of they'll be studying Spanish in kindergarten. We could see people who are trilingual, um, speaking some combination of an Asian dialect, an Hispanic dialect, and an American dialect, an American English dialect. So well, what does that mean now in terms of the official language of the United States? Well, the society itself. One of the great strengths of America is its historical reliance upon and good attitude about immigration. We have very large communities of people who are already here. The largest number of people who live, who are Greek, who live outside of Greece, live in Queens, New York. The largest number of Koreans who live outside of Korea live in Los Angeles and so on and so forth. So our, one of the things is it's our historical strength of the melting pot is it certainly puts us in a better stead than it does many of the countries in the European Union. 
but it certainly means that the society itself is going to become much much more multicultural, much more uh, textured, and it'll look a lot more like a New York City subway car at rush hour than it does like Oshkosh, Wisconsin at the moment. Right. Now, what do you think the implications are then for politics and the office of the president? Well, I mean, I, I would say the new the most important new racial category in our country and the cultural category that we're going to be discovering are the new colors of the American rainbow. We've talked about a society, for instance, as recently as the 1970s and 1980s that we would divide along black and white, black America and white America. But we're going to be describing brown America, and we're going to be describing new cultural categories, new um, integrated ethnicities, and we're also going to be talking about Asian America, as, in, in, as has been the case in every single new community that comes into our country, uh, they find each other, they build strength, they build political strength, and they wield political strength uh, in our society, which we think is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. But in the same way that we, we remember we as a society went through a process where we thought it was a big deal when we had our first Catholic president. Mm. We thought it was a big deal when we had our first Italian or African-American mayor here in New York City. And in the same way, we're going to see a huge shift in a political interest in these new communities. And but, but that's an old story for America. That's happened with new communities as they've come into the country, found themselves acclimated, and built political capital and, and exercised it. But, it. but it's more interesting to think about the broad cultural categories. For instance, the new MTV channels that are launching now uh, MTV is launching shows like uh, MTV Devi, which is a channel aimed at Indian American, Hindu American uh, teenagers. They're launching another one for Chinese American teenagers. This idea of new immigrant communities that receive their own cultural products that are aimed specifically at them in a much more rainbow-hued way by big overarching cultural brands like MTV. Now, are they launching those products here in the United States, or is yeah. it something that's more international? No, they're or launching both. here. They're launching here. So but strictly the, in the United States. Well, one of the great stories, though, is how companies are beginning to understand that lessons they learn overseas have increasing relevance in the society here. Um, if it's possible, after the break, I can actually tell you a story about um, one of those companies, Frito-Lay, and the experience that they had in China. Absolutely, absolutely. We will be back just in a few minutes, listeners. I'd like to let you know that you are online with Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. My guest today is futures researcher and trend forecaster, Andrew Zoli. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. I don't think you want to go away. When business is in your blood and you need answers, get connected. Call 1-866-233-7861. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. 
Business talk is all we do. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Achieve total wealth management. Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Roe Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern on Business America Radio. Three-Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a values-based approach to comprehensive total wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road of financial independence. Listen to Three-Dimensional Wealth with Roe Diefendorf, Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the bottom line in business talk, businessamericaradio.com. The bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.31 Eastern Time, and you're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is futures researcher and trend forecaster, Andrew Zoli. Andrew, we have a caller on the line, Elizabeth from New York. Welcome to Design Matters. Hi. Hi. Uh, hi, Andrew, and hi, Debbie. Hi, um, I actually have two questions regarding the discussion um, earlier that you were talking about, about the older demographic and them now living with their parents. Yeah. Um, well, I just read recently this week that there's a growing trend in Japan that there's a huge proportion of their workforce is now made up of workers in their 60s, like early to mid-60s, and, and going strong. Um, do you believe this will be a global trend as mortality rates are way higher now than ever before? And if so, do you think this will be the expectation or the norm within the new combined multi-generational families that exist? Uh, that's a great question. It is so, a great question. <laughs> the, answer, the answer is that it depends on where you're talking about. There is a kind of three-step great demographic transition that happens when Countries go through a period where they have very high mortality, and that is a lot of people dying, and they have very high birth rates. And then they go through a process where they have decreasing mortality and high birth rates, and then eventually their birth rates slow, and they have slow, low mortality and low birth rates, and that is to say they have fewer people, and those people are having fewer babies, and they're living longer. Now, in the West, what there are... If you, if you think about where in the world this trend of really uh, rapidly aging populations are happening in their strongest and clearest articulation, where you can really see the trend, well, it's happening certainly in Western Europe. It's absolutely happening in Japan. Um, one of the reasons for that is, and one of the reasons this happens, is a whole series of social forces that range from a change in the way that religion organizes the society, the rise of materialism and secularism, in a society, and especially the number of women who are working in the workforce actually has a, a negative impact on the total number of children that couples have when they get married um, because women don't have an expectation that they're going to be the principal caregiver at home while their husbands go out and work. Now, one of the other factors, though, it's quite interesting, is that any place that the Second World War was fought and lost locally uh, is, is experiencing this trend in a big way, which is why you hear Italy, France, Germany, and Japan a whole lot. Um, in this in this context. They're not perfectly the same, but they're very similar. Now, one of the things that happens is when you have people who are going to live into their, let's say, 80s, 90s, and 
hundreds. Well, one of the things that happens is you have a market for health care to help those people live even longer than they otherwise normally would because they've got a whole bunch of assets that they've been holding on to and you know, gaining interest on in their bank accounts. So the healthcare companies are working on technologies that might help that generation live 10, 15, 20, and sometimes even much longer than that. So in the process, we're really redefining what it means to be a senior citizen. When we invented the idea of retirement and some social services benefits, when we invented the age of retirement at 65, well, people, the average age of mortality in the U.S. when we decided the average age of retirement was going to be 65 was 67. You were going to live for two years in retirement and then die uh, on average. And what's happened is we've lived longer, but we haven't really raised the age of retirement. We've created this 20- or 30-year period where people are not working. And they're often feeling young and healthy and really eager to work. So one of the things we're going to see is a lot more older people in the workforce. We're really going to transform retirement. So there will be people who will be working in the, in the workforce longer. And, and really the, the long story here is that this is an age of paradox. Whenever you get big discontinuous changes in a society like this, often you have a trend and a counter trend at the same time. Some of those older folks are going to be working in the workforce longer. They're going to be feeling young and healthy. They're going to be feeling like they're 55 when they're 75 or 85. So 50 is the new 30, so to speak. <laughs> That's exactly right. In fact, actually, one of the things you see is really interesting uh, today is a shift in the way we think about managing our lifespan. Um, on the one hand, we see something I think is really tragic, which is we see the sexualization of childhood, people entering adolescence at a younger and younger age. There's lots of reasons, some of them cultural and some of them biological, why that's happening, why, why uh, young boys and girls are becoming physically adolescents at a younger age. I want to talk about that as well in, in more length when we're finished sure. with this question. Well, at the other end of the equation, we also have people who are in their 40s and 50s who are acting like teenagers. What we see is the erosion of childhood and the erosion of adulthood and the massive expansion of what it means to be an adolescent. You are an adolescent when you're 10 years old, and increasingly you're an adolescent when you're 30 years old. This big expansion of, you know, this is my time to screw around and have fun because if I'm going to live to be 100 years old, I'm going to enjoy this quasi-adulthood for as long as I can before I have to get serious. Except that there are also major changes now in fertility. There are. But in the same way, it's interesting, you know, men achieve their, and I have to say this politely. No, you don't. No, we're not, we're not on censored radio. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's mostly for my own, you know, personal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> men achieve their peak desire to reproduce about age 17 and a half, usually during third period study hall when it's really convenient. Um, <laughs> Girls uh, typically achieve it slightly later, and the reason for that is that for tens of thousands of years, men lived to the age of about 35, and they achieved their peak desire to reproduce about halfway through, and women live slightly longer. Now, at the beginning of the 20th century, the average lifespan for a man in the United States was about 45, and we were getting married in our early 20s. We were not getting married in our teens. By mid-century, uh, our lifespan had increased to uh, something much higher than that in our 60s, and we were getting married in our 20s and 30s and deferring our fertility choices. And today, when people get have babies in their 30s and even their 40s, it's not a big deal. We only really get excited when someone in their 60s has, you know, octuplets. <laughs> and then we put them on television, right? Right. Then there's a reality TV show about it, that. 
Exactly, exactly. But on the back of these longevity technologies that we're going to see in the course of the next 25 years, we can expect people to be making reproductive choices in their 70s, 80s, 90s, and up. Because if you're going to live to be 150 or 160 years old and your kids are going to be teenagers living in that sustained adolescence for the rest of your life, which means they're going to be sleeping on your sofa and playing PlayStation 10,000 or whatever, the, whatever revision we're up to, you want to defer those reproductive choices for as long as possible. So this has all kinds of consequences for the way we structure family, the way we structure our labor force, and... Uh, it's going to happen in different places in different ways, strongly mediated by local cultural norms. So it'll happen differently in, Ch in China. It'll happen differently in Japan. It'll happen differently in the United States. It'll happen differently, differently in Italy. But generally speaking, the youth bulge is a fact we have to live with for the next 25 years, but the graying of our society, uh, the fact that humans are going to live a lot longer, is something we have to live with permanently. So, Andrew, how is this sustained adolescence how, did, how has that come to be? You talked about biological changes in adolescence and adolescence now beginning at 10 years old. Why has that happened from a biological standpoint? Well, no one knows the answer. Um, there are some good theories that suggest uh, that changes in the diet and the food supply and the nature of the American food supply uh, play a significant role. For instance, um, there are artificial estrogens that are the esters that are the basis of the hormones that are fed to beef cattle. Mm -hmm. And those uh, estrogens may be an early cause of hormonal changes in the bodies of pre-adolescent girls. In fact, there was a story in uh, one of the major newspapers not three days ago about maiden form, which has had to actually develop entirely new classes of products aimed at girls who are under 10 years old who are sexually developing. Um, it's become a market for them that's not serviced and not framed appropriately for children. Um, they're not sold, you know, in the same way that uh, that junior uh, undergarments are sold to, to young girls. And so, the, part of the reason for this might be the the, the uh, hormones in the food supply. That, that's a that's been a very common. Uh, uh, assumption and, and is currently being tested. Um, but this is also strongly mediated by the role that uh, our unregulated consumer society pl uh, plays in, in turning kids into consumers and really uh, consumers all by themselves, unguided consumers. So do you think it's more psychological? Do you think it's more biological? Uh, I think it's probably a combination of both, personally. But my opinion here is, is as informed as, you know, even the most world's best experts on this issue can't, don't have a consensus. So all I can do is report on, on this issue. I, I, my opinion is, is worth the same as everybody else's in, in, who are tracking this issue. But do you find that it's more demographically apparent in some areas versus another? Is it, is it more urban? Is it more suburban? Is it more Midwestern? I mean, where are you seeing this um, bio biological change being most prevalent? Well, these changes are being tracked across the United States. So this isn't something that concentrates in any particular context, although there are some early studies that suggest it's tied to diet, which is why, for instance, if you have uh, people who are uh, children who are eating lots and lots of processed fast food and they're getting artificial hormones in the food that they eat, for instance, or other uh, chemicals, we, we haven't done, in any cases, long-term studies to suggest that... Um, uh, what the long-term impacts of these things might be. They, they are apparently safe in the short term, so we've legalized them. 
I'm not here to criticize one side or the other because I don't think we have enough information, but it's certainly possible and plausible that the obesity epidemic, which is tied to overall caloric intake and to the interference of some of these substances in our food supply, um, that the same factors are responsible for the obesity epidemic as are responsible for uh, the early pubescence um, epidemic that that seems to be happening. but all of this gets accelerated by culture. I mean, that is to say, I don't know if you've watched um, what's, if, you know, watch a little um, um, uh, cartoon network, you know, and what you'll discover are ads that are aimed at 9- and 10-year-olds and the creation of all kinds of shows in which 9- and 10-year-old kids and 11-year-old kids are dealing with issues which were previously the providence of kids who are in their 17, 18, 16, you know, kind of full-on teen years. Um, and, and all of those range from sexual activity to forming relationships to how to dress. And, and we're really putting the burden of much more adult choices on children. It's not surprising that they respond both biologically and psychologically. Well, thank you for this wonderful question, Elizabeth. I hope your question was answered. Um, we have a number of other callers on the line. Um, I'd like to come back after our break to talk a little bit more about uh, what Andrew referred to as the unregulated consumer society, obviously a topic very close to my heart. Um, but I'd like everybody to know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm Debbie Millman, and my guest today is futures researcher and trend forecaster Andrew Zoli. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. More and more people are starting their day with informative, focused business talk. Top experts. Today's business issues. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. What stock should I buy? When is it time to sell? Where do I turn for honest advice on my portfolio? For the answers to these questions, tune in to Trading in Today's Markets with Oliver Velez and Greg Capra every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. On the show, Oliver, Greg, and their guests will discuss the daily going-ons of Wall Street as well as give you tips on how to identify the hottest sectors and trends in the market. Improve your portfolio. Listen to Trading in Today's Markets with Oliver Velez and Greg Capra. Broadcast live on Business America Radio every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Business talk is all we do. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Are your accounts stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic? Are your finances flowing at two miles an hour? It's time to crank your cash into high gear by tuning in to Making Sense of Financial Nonsense with Bullseye Bruce Horowitz. Every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, Bullseye Bruce will give you no-nonsense, common-sense financial advice that anyone can understand, as well as bring you clarity on some of the most complex and confusing financial issues today. So get out of that traffic jam and listen to Making Sense of Financial Nonsense every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. 
Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and The Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.47 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is futures researcher and trend forecaster, Andrew Zoli. If you have a question for Mr. Zoli, please call us at 1-866-233-7861. And I believe we do have a caller on the line, Peter from New York City. Welcome to Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Peter. How are you? Good, thanks. Um, here's, a, here's a futurist question. Um, with the world sort of now a public telephone booth, since everybody's on their cell phone, and um, the rest of them tuned out on their iPods, I'm wondering if you see a counter-revolution in response to these things where, for example, let's say restaurants would provide revamped telephone booths and insist their patrons use them uh, instead of taking and making calls at the table. Oh, sure. I I think that certainly you'll see, uh, you know, every major transformational trend creates a counter-trend, creates a movement against it. There's always a reactionary response as well as an embracing response. So, it doesn't, wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if that became a value-added service. I just returned from two weeks on the Great Barrier Reef. The place I was staying actually advertised its lack of connectivity. <laughs> so there's no question that in the right circumstances that basically the, the cone of silence is an appropriate, uh, is an appropriate thing. I, I was actually just on the transatlantic flight uh, where everyone... Um, was connected via uh, wireless broadband in uh, in first class, and what everyone discovered was uh, this application called Skype, which allows you to make free uh, phone calls. And, and what happened was that the first class cabin turned into kind of the chattering classes. Everyone was on the phone basically for the entire flight between here and Germany. So it was, it, it, certainly you see these technologies come into a place, and then people have to establish new social rules around them and new social conventions. Right, especially since the, the, there is an older population and it continues to grow. That's true, although I think the important thing is that it's very hard to be very precisely predictive about what those trends will be. And the thing about these uh, new technologies in particular is that they tend to be much more generative of difference than in, in the end. That is to say, we, you know, as an example, uh, we all get cell phones, well, the social rules around social etiquettes around around cell phones 
will get much more complicated as they're capable of doing a whole bunch more different things, a wider, much wider variety of different things. Uh, and they will generate and spawn all kinds of different um, social values in different communities. If you ask what the social norms of cell phone usage are among 16-year-old kids, it's very different than if you ask what it would be around 55-year-old business executives and, and housewives and house husbands and the rest of it. Every, you know, everyone's radically different, and you get a lot of different norms. It's really interesting to watch those norms when they're forced to collide with one another, as they often are during long family car trips. Absolutely. Well, I do think that a backlash to the major transformational trend of connectivity is actually the use of the iPod, because that's when you actually can retreat from having to listen to everybody else talk about their shopping list and what they're going to be doing on Saturday night and, you know, why somebody isn't sleeping with somebody else. I think that there's a whole separate backlash of connectivity in, in our search for isolation and a reprieve from all of that. Well, in, in every single way, and this is a perfect example, there is a kind of digital solipsism a sense in which you can live in a highly customized world of your own creation, which is deeply filtering and excludes all kinds of people around you. And there's a paradox here, though. That's the part that's interesting. That, for instance, um, XM satellite radio is a great thing. I love XM satellite radio. I'm required by dint of my job often to rent cars. I will only rent cars that have XM satellite radio. Now, what's interesting is that on the one hand, it's a little like the iPod plugged into my dashboard. I have a national set of musical choices, and in that sense, I'm missing out on all the local variety that might be available on the dial as I'm driving through a whole bunch of different places. On the, on the upside, however, there's a huge amount of variety in that space that I would not otherwise have access to. It becomes a much larger space. I mean, XM has hundreds and hundreds of channels that I might otherwise not have access. I might only have locally access to three or four. Mm-hmm. And the iPod's a, a perfect example, you know, or or take my um, instant messenger-enabled PDA. I'm not talking to the people around me, but I'm listening to any one of 4,000 songs on my iPod and connected in conversation to a half dozen people all around the globe, wherever I happen to be. That's a very complex circumstance. I'm not really less connected in that environment. I'm much more connected. I'm just not connected locally. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you're you're more connected locally, but I think you're certainly less connected to the possibilities of things that you don't know. Of course, yeah, that's true. And I think that's that's really the danger in creating this world around us where we're so capable of hearing, seeing, experiencing so much, but it's still within the realm of our own choices as opposed to what we might be exposed to if we weren't sort of so, you know, involved in our own little world. Well, on the one hand, I totally appreciate that concern, Debbie, and, and I believe me, I understand it. I mean, we've all vegged out to a, basically our own little soundtrack and, and sort of disconnected from a world of greater opportunity now. Oh, that's why I'm guilty of that, you know, every day. Every day, right. <laughs> but, at the, but at the same time, the, the other fact that doesn't matter is it, in these highly connected technologies, it's very easy to be knocked out of your normal rhythm and to be exposed to new things. That's why we refer to the fundamental act of being on the Internet as surfing, because no matter what you're doing, it's very likely that you can be introduced to things that you never would have seen before in highly connected contexts because there's no impediments to finding them. You can sort of accidentally stumble along the Internet and find all kinds of things that blow your mind. Yes, you're all used true. to that idea. 
you can stumble a lot more easily than you ever used to be able to. Yeah, but it's, you're right. It's a paradox in that sense. And I, I certainly uh, agree with you on the on the side that that it, there's a danger in kind of digital solipsism. Well, Peter, I hope your question was answered. Thank you very much for calling Design Matters. Um, Andrew, you talk a lot about emerging trends becoming converging trends. And what do you mean by that? Well, uh, there's a whole bunch of different uh, ways of taking that uh, that idea. Certainly, uh, change in one area has a cascading effect on changes in other areas. We talked about one of those this afternoon when we talked about how um, emerging demographic trends shape emerging healthcare trends. Um, you see it especially in science and technology where right now lots of innovation is deeply connected. For instance, if I showed you the growth rate in the decoding of our, the human genome, it's almost perfectly mapped to the pro increase in processor speed of computer chips. So our insights into biology are driven by our insights into the engineering of computer science uh, and, and chip manufacture which in turn, you know, these two things, these two areas of innovation, um, information technology and biotechnology, are so tightly coupled that they're spawning lots of intermediate disciplines like um, bioinformatics would be a perfect example. And you read about the uh, artist that was arrested, uh, was in the New York Times over, over last weekend doing uh, the, the bio art now? Yes. Which the New York Times is referred to as the only art left that's subversive, which I thought was quite astonishing. <laughs> and in fact, uh, you know, we there are people now who are. It will get it will get much more subversive because uh, the whole much more ethically complicated and much more ethically complicated. I mean, as an example, um, let me give you two questions which we don't. Nobody knows the answers to, and which uh, society has to find a kind of median place, uh, 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 a median uh, point of of understanding. And and before I say this, the one thing to know about biotech is. The difference between biotech and infotech is that uh, in infotech, Bill Gates stands up and promises you that in 10 years you'll be able to talk to your computer, it will understand you and talk back to you, and then that doesn't happen. In biotech, people say, last year I cloned a creature, and everyone flips, flips out, not because they're proposing to do it, but because they've already done it. Right. And so many of these innovations get announced rather than proposed, and that's a big distinction. In, in biotech today, um, there's the opportunity, for instance, to create uh, technologies that will allow us to grow human organs, just like human blood factor, uh, for instance, in, um, in uh, other creatures, so that we genetically enhance a creature, let's say a, a pig, uh, we change its DNA, so that it produces a factor which we then filter out of its blood and inject into human blood supply to, to uh, solve a plasma shortage, for instance. But that requires us, in order to do that, to produce a chimeric creature, a creature that is a hybrid, at least at the genetic level, of both human and the you know, traditional species that it started out as. Now, there's a wonderful opportunity there to help heal millions of people and to help address some incredibly horrendous fatal diseases. Um, but it comes at the cost of some rather Frankenstein-like technologies that well, we're not entirely yeah. sure we want to have. And then that leads me to the question, which I think is certainly um, a wonderful way of wrapping up today's show, is, is this science or is it art or is it both? 
or is it neither? <laughs> it's definitely both. <laughs> Andrew, there's no question I'm going to have to have you on for another episode of Design Matters. This has been extraordinary. Thank you so much. Um, we've come to the end of our broadcast, and I'd like to thank you so much for being on the show. I'd also like to thank the kind and very patient people at Voice America Business, Denise Dion, Chris Hilliard, Lori Call, Robert Arkin, my production manager, Ruben Colomb, and my executive producer, Brian Travis. I'd also like to thank the staff and my partners at Sterling, my incredible producer, Lisa Grant, and my chief researcher, Jen Simon. Join me next week for Design Matters. My guest is the reigning queen of graphic design, Ms. Paula Cher from Pentagram. Thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, or we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am J.B. Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. <laughs>